Welcome to the One Question Podcast, brought to you by Wabi Sabi Studios. I'm your host, Michelle Cox, and I love having unlikely conversations on uncomfortable topics. It's a huge passion of mine, so much so that I wrote a few books a while back that challenge people's notion on living a life more unconventionally. This entire podcast stems around one question. If there was one topic you wish society would talk more about, what would it be? Here is a good time here to distinguish between fault and responsibility. Like it might not be your fault that you had cancer. It might not be your fault that you were in that car crash. But the responsibility that we take for our healing, that is completely within our power. I've been a bit excited about having this dynamo on the show. She's hilarious and I know we're going to have some fun. If you follow her on Insta, she does these wonderful reels and videos that make practical analogies about stuff in life that really make sense, but she does it in such a funny way that it's uh, incredibly entertaining. I'm talking about the infamous Emily Chadbourne, and in her eyes, she used to be a bit of an idiot. At 34 years old, she realized that no one was going to rescue her from her crappy waitressing job or her crappy life. She had to do it herself. Now she shows other women how to consciously cultivate their businesses, relationships, inner strength, and it's been an evolution that she calls becoming unashamedly human. can completely relate to that, Em. Emily's no BS sassy approach and honest accounts of the real world of love, life, and business are often hilarious and always valuable. Strap in listeners, I reckon this is going to be one epic conversation. Emily, I cannot tell you how excited I am to sit in front of you today and have you on the show. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, We are going to have a ball, I know, because you crack me up on a daily basis with your Instagram profile and the way you capture and articulate such complex problems in such a simple way. So we're going to get into that. But if there is one thing that you wish society would talk more about in, what would it be? It's radical responsibility. I think people's mental health would be better. That's a sweeping statement, a grandiose statement to say. But I think radical responsibility. I mean, there's so many directions we can take this conversation. Tell me why this is a topic that you're so passionate about and why you think that people need to talk more about it. Okay, so I think like most good stories, it starts with me not taking radical responsibility. I was one of those people that I had a, lo- I had a lovely childhood. I had great parents. I had a good education. I'm really, the only way I could be more privileged is if you put a penis on me. <laughs> That's it. Like I am able-bodied. I am white. I am educated. I had lovely caring parents. I came from a middle-class family. And whilst that's all really, it is wonderful, so, so grateful for it. I don't think I ever really learnt about how to consciously create or design my life. I kind of just got carried away with this is what you do. You go to school, you go to college, you go to university, and then you go and get a job. You'll probably find a partner, you'll probably get married, and then you'll probably have children. And I just think that's what I'd seen mapped out. That's what I'd seen demonstrated by everybody else. And I wasn't particularly resilient. And what I mean by that is I had this sort of programming that was, it's just better not to try than it is to fail. 
I hadn't worked out failure. For me, it was something to be feared and something to be avoided. So I only ever did the things that I was good at. And I've always been quite good at managing people. And I was working in a restaurant at university and the pub next door had a lock-in. So I don't know if you have lock-ins in Australia, but in the UK, all the pubs close at 11 p.m. If you know the landlord and the landlord's medium rare dodgy, you can get into the pub at quarter to 11 just before they close and they lock the doors, they turn out the lights and everyone kind of sits in the dark and continues drinking. It's called a lock-in. I used to do it often when I lived in London. (laughs) Yes, it's such, such a great cultural thing, drinking in the dark. There's nothing like it. And so the pub next door, the Royal Oak, had, used to have lock-ins. We knew the, the manager quite well. And the restaurant where I worked, the kitchen closed at about 10 o'clock. If you'd been busy and you had a rubbish team of staff on, there's no way you were getting to the pub by 10.45. But if you were efficient and smart about it, you could get out and into the pub. And so I would just start telling people what to do. I'd be like, right, you do that, you do this, I want you over there, you get on with that, and then we can be out of here in time. And management saw and thought that it was, you know, great leadership. But really, I just wanted to get to the pub. And so (laughs) I found myself in a leadership position in hospitality. I was good at it. It was easy. I continued through university, went traveling around the world, came back continued working in in restaurants and in the UK it's a very different type of landscape hospitality so I was working in big huge massive like two three hundred restaurants across the country working in sort of operations for them and then I came to Australia followed love followed a boy and realized that my experience in the UK meant nothing over here it was completely irrelevant OH, what's it called? Health and safety over here, OHS. is different here. Food safety is different here. I thought I could make coffee and it turned out I couldn't make coffee. And I found myself sort of waiting tables for 30 bucks, uh, 20 bucks an hour, sorry. And I was in my early 30s and everyone around me was getting married and having children or buying houses or getting promoted. And I was literally scraping plates for $20 an hour. And that continued here for about five years. And I was just sort of swirling in this victimhood of why is my life turned out like this? It's not fair. Felt very trapped by my circumstances. Whenever anyone tried to give me advice or whenever anyone tried to suggest that, you know, I could do this or I could do this, I was so quick to shut it down because I was so weirdly invested in proving a point that the world wasn't fair. And then when I hit 35, I well, 34 actually, I... um. I walked into a free weekend, personal development weekend, and it was the first time that anyone had told me that I was responsible for my results, that they were my responsibility. In all your life, no, you'd never heard that before at 34 years old? <laughs> Not that way, no. <laughs> wow. No. People are just, Em's all right. She's all right. She's doing all right. She's just a bit lost at the moment. She'll be all right. Because I've, I've always been all right. I've always been the sort of person that comes life and soul of every party, you know? So I think people have always just assumed that I was all right. But those five years when I was waiting tables, I was not all right. And I think here is a good time here to distinguish between fault and responsibility. Like it might not be your fault that you had shitty parents and it might not be your fault that you had cancer. It might not be your fault that you were in that car crash. All of these things that aren't necessarily you're not to blame 
but the responsibility that we take for our healing, for how we relate to any given situation, what we want to make our experiences mean, how we respond and the perspective that we put on, that is completely within our power. I had never 30, 35 before I learned that. Oh God, see that just, I find that so bizarre. Like I'm just, all oh, my life, I think I knew that when I was five. Oh no, my life would have been so different. So different. Almost overnight, my life changed, how I felt about myself, how I felt about other people, how I spoke, what I did, how I related to failure, what success meant. It changed everything for me. And I think there are people and I see these, I see people who feel like life has done them over. And objectively, there will always be somebody who is worse off than you. And there will always be someone who's better off than you. And some of the richest people I know are not the people who were afforded privilege. They are not necessarily the people who have millions of dollars in their bank account. They are the people who wake up in the morning and they go, I am alive. What a gift. And what do I want to do with what I have been given? I think we, we move into dangerous territory when we start applying sort of a toxic positivity to things or when we assume that everyone is at the same starting point and I think we see this quite a lot in the manifestation culture at the moment which is like all you really need to do love is like really want it like do you really want it if you really wanted it you'd have it by now it just like shut up really quickly stop talking and take your profile down from the internet because I think that is quite a dangerous rhetoric to be pushing on people that they just you know they just need to want to be better they just want they need to want to have more there is an element with that though I think the only thing I'd say that you know that positivity I mean there's a component where I feel that if you are positive about something and so you know not being Pollyanna that you're unrealistic but I mean, I kind of, my attitude to life is, you know, I'm an optimistic soul. Even though I've had a lot of shit happen to me, I am fundamentally an optimistic person that goes, okay, you know, let's look at the situation. I'm great in crisis management because I just kind of go, right, let's, right, we're in lockdown, a bit like you when you're you know, in your days of getting to the pub. It's like, what is, what are we dealing with here? What needs to be done? Let's just get on with it. And so um, when I've been in my darkest days and, you know, really horrendous kind of situations, I go into that sort of fight, flight, deal with it, come through. And then I'm like, all right, now, you know, what's the landscape we're dealing with now? And then I, you know, always can then put a positive optimism and go, yeah, that's really shit that that happened. I can't do anything about it. So what do I need to change in my life, my attitude, my whatever, to actually move forward with this new information. And Yeah, absolutely. That's my definition of optimism, for sure. Yeah. I think you can't have a conversation about manifestation without having a conversation about privilege, because we're not all starting at the same starting line. A lot of us are carrying huge amounts of trauma. Some of us were born into such disadvantage that I think we just need to be honoring of that and holding the line of not your fault, always your responsibility to decide what you are going to do with the next part of your life or how you are going to heal or that kind of stuff. So so what did you do then? So you said you went to this course, it was game changing and you know, you learned things that you hadn't even thought about yourself before. So what happened next? What did you put in place to actually really you know, flip your life as you've done? So I think I was in a place where I felt like I didn't really have much to lose. 
was quite a humbling time those five years because like many people have quite an inflated ego and I was brought up in an environment where you put on a particular face to the community around you everything is always fine and you know anything that's not fine is happening indoors we don't discuss that outside and so those five years where obviously everything wasn't fine because all my friends were buying cars and doing lovely things and I was like scraping together money for rent it was quite a humbling experience and probably one I really needed to have so I felt like I didn't have anything else to lose I was like what's the worst case scenario that I go back to waitressing that's the worst case scenario and I was already felt like I was at the worst case scenario for me. So I enrolled in the course. I didn't think oh, I'm going to become a coach or, or I'm going to have this sort of global branded coaching company. That's not really what I thought I could do. I did think maybe I could learn some coaching skills and maybe have a, enough clients so that I didn't have to work in restaurants anymore. That was my only aim. So I did the course and I realized quite early on I was actually quite a good coach. And what coaching did for me is it brought me back to my own unique set of skills that I'd probably not seen as relevant or important or even very useful. So like many children, I was always told that I spoke too much and that Emily would just, Emily would be a great learner if she just didn't speak so much or Emily distracts other children and just always talking. And what I've learned in my adult years is that that's a skill set to be able to tell a story, to be able to explain quite a big abstract concept to somebody in a way that makes it relevant to them so that they can embody it so that they can create change for themselves. Not everybody has that skill set. It's actually quite special. My parents threw me on the stage at the age of five because I, in my dad's words, was born with jazz hands. And so I didn't have that inherent fear that other people seem to have of like stage fright or worrying about standing up in front of a room full of people. I mean, obviously, I still get a bit like, oh, it's keynote. These people are really important. OK, moments because I'm human, but I don't, you know, I don't freak out about it. I just I just get on with it. I'm like, oh, it's OK. I've done this before. I've been on stage before. I've forgotten my lines before. You know, a piece of scenery has fallen down around me before and we just carry on. It'll always be OK. And so I, I had this skill set that I just hadn't really tapped into. And when I began to learn that the parts of me that I had tried to bury because I thought they made me unlovable were actually what made me awesome, that changed everything. So I just started, this was, in, this was way before Instagram. This is just in the days when Facebook was basically the only real social media platform, Facebook and Twitter. And I just started showing up on live Facebook talking about what I was learning and, you know, no one watched. And then my sister gave it a blue thumbs up. And then a couple more people joined in. And and that's really where it started, this idea that, you know, I could explain the concepts that I was learning to other people in a really fun and quite jovial way. And then it just it just kind of has naturally evolved. It has not been linear growth in any way, shape or form. It's been messy and scrappy. And I've changed my mind a million times. And I don't consider myself to be a particularly good like entrepreneur or, or even a particularly good business owner necessarily. I don't think that's where my skill set lies, but I've kept showing up. I just keep showing up. And I, when it doesn't work, I take radical responsibility for it. When it does work, I take radical responsibility for it. When I feel like giving up, I remind myself that that is my choice 
and I have autonomy to do that. And the consequences will also then be my responsibility. And which set of consequences do I want to live with? And it's just been one radical responsible step in front of the other. And it's afforded me a life of great freedom, not just freedom in terms of time freedom and financial freedom, but more than anything, like freedom from my mind, freedom to be able to question the stories that have held me back or to push the edges of some of the belief systems that might be holding me from experiencing life in a completely different way. Freedom from my fear, and I don't mean the absence of my fear, I mean the freedom to be able to kind of tuck my fear under my arm and give it a little, what's that thing called, a little noogie where you like scrabble the head, the top of the head in a headlock and do the damn thing anyway. And that has all come from this space of radical responsibility. I, like most people, you know, have had my fair share of heartbreak and grief. And, you know, that 2017 was a particularly awful year for me. I had a series of events that happened very close together. My mum died. My partner left me. Turns out my partner left me for one of my best friends. I had a really terrible injury from running. I was kind of found myself broke again because I'd been back and forth to the UK so much and my business had suffered so much while my mum had been sick. And, you know, I got to the end of 2017 and I looked down the barrel gun of 2018 and I was like, there is only one way I'm going to be able to survive this. And that is if I give up alcohol, I can't continue to drink my way through this situation. And it, it took five months before I walked into an AA room, actually, because, you know, tried very, very hard to stop drinking and couldn't. And again, it's just that step of like radical responsibility, I think, asking yourself who you want to be and how you want to live and and what you want to create and then taking what is quite often the uncomfortable steps to make that happen that has just I constantly wow myself with my capabilities (laughs) and again that just comes from taking radical responsibility so let's pretend I want to dig into the um, radical responsibility part more of how you kind of define that and how you coach people through that to kind of almost give them the, you know, wet fish across the face reality slap that you you sort of had to shock them into taking drastic action because that's kind of how a lot of the time I see this sort of stuff. What are the things that you sort of talk about with people? Like how do you take radical responsibility if you've not done that before? Yeah, that's such a good question. I think the first thing is to recognize your part in manifestation. So life is always happening in duality, right? We we exist under the law of polarity. And so as much as we are completely and totally and utterly not in control of anything, right? We can't control the global pandemic. We can't control when people die. We don't get to control what other people do, as frustrating as that can be. <laughs> but On the flip of that, we are also completely in control of how we choose to respond to things and how we choose to respond to anything will have an effect on what we can manifest from the situation that we're in. So I hope that I lead very well through demonstrations. So I write a weekly email. The one that's going out this week is all about a full adult temper tantrum that I had yesterday. And my fear and my worry and my doubt all rocked up at the front door and I welcomed them in and I had this full pity party. And actually, you know, how actually really important it can be to listen to your fear and to listen to your worry and to listen to your doubts because they hold a lot of information that we can't just discard because if we discard it, we never get the chance 
to do anything about it. So I hope that the way I deliver uh, information is very much through the living demonstration of what I believe. In terms of how do I coach clients, the first thing that we do um, when people come into the Amplify container, which is my membership, is we learn about how to manage our mind. So that is observing ourselves instead of necessarily believing all of our thoughts, uh, learning the formulas and the strategies to break down our stories, to find out where they came from, to question them. Do we really believe that they're true? How do we behave when we believe that they're true? If we could create a different truth, what would we do instead? Um, So it's about like giving ourselves autonomy over our thoughts. And I'm a huge believer in mindfulness and creating space so that we can take a moment between the thing that is happening and our reaction to it. Because in that moment, sometimes all we need is a beat to be like, okay, that person's just ignored me on the street. My reaction is to say, must be about me. What have I done wrong? I'm a terrible person or to be angry with that person. How dare that person ignore me? That's so awful. And the beat, the heartbeat in between that is to question the story. Is it complete? Is it the only truth that's available right now is that that person must hate me? Or could it be that that person is having a bad day? That person didn't see me. That person has got their own shit going on. You know, that's a really benign example, but we can relate that to absolutely everything. I had a client came up to me recently who'd just been made redundant and she said what am I going to do and I was like well what do you want to (laughs) do like take ownership of the stories that you are telling yourself and and what you're going to make that redundancy mean because you can make redundancy mean that you are not worthy and that you're not good enough and that nothing good ever happens to you and that life is out to get you and that will then be your experience of it because you know how do you behave when you believe that is the truth you're not going to turn up to you know, networking events, or you're not going to apply for jobs, or you're just going to sort of sit in your own victimhood for a while. Or you can grieve, because that's an important part of being a human being. I don't deny feelings, and I don't deny emotions. I think it's really important that we have that moment to be like, oh, God, that shit. And then you have to pick yourself up and you go, how do I want to relate to this shit bit? Like, what do I want to make it mean? I could tell myself the story that this is the universe giving me the opportunity of a lifetime. How do I behave when I go, God, great, I've got this redundancy payout, brilliant. And now I get to decide what the next chapter of my life looks like and to see that as a gift. So a lot of that seems to me that it's like reframing. Yeah, taking information and go, I could react this way, but actually if I frame it a little bit differently, how could I make that kind of work in my favour? And I think, you know, that's probably where I'm getting at with that positivity before I can always spin stuff to kind of suit me, I guess. (laughs) Absolutely. And I think when we're looking at like designing your life or like being the architect of the life that you're experiencing, which is ultimately what manifestation is, right? Like manifestation is based in evidence as opposed to too much pseudoscience. Don't get me wrong. I love a crystal and I will happily burn some shit at the full moon. Without doubt, I will burn the fucker down (laughs) at at midnight on a full moon. But I don't think that that's what is creating my wonderful life. I am what is creating my wonderful life. And sometimes burning stuff can help me release stuff and a crystal looks nice and it gives me the belief that, you know, I've got the good good uh, voodoo vibes in my house. 
awesome. But do I really believe that that crystal is going to manifest me money? No, I'm going to manifest me money. And I'm going to do that by action. I'm going to do that by questioning the stories I have around my money. I'm going to do that by questioning the belief systems I have around my money. And I'm going to look very hard at the action that I take with my money. I'm not going to sit at home going, if I had more money, my life would be better. I'm going to look at my bank account. and I'm going to go, this is the money I have right now. How can I make that better? Because once I make that better, then more money can come to me. So I think it's about definitely honing the skill of managing your mind and then marrying that with taking massive action through the lens of manifestation. And you, I mean, you talk a lot about designing your own life and, you know, something that suits you. And I think that that's a beautiful place that, you know, your honesty around reaching, you know, that dire point, I guess, at 34 years old, you know, and realizing that maybe I don't need to have a life like everyone else has, or maybe I don't need to get married and have, you know, the babies and whatever. And so on that thread of radical responsibility, you've taken action around your own being child-free status by choice. So talk to me a bit about that and how you came to that decision and how you work through that in life, because obviously... I wrote a book about it's okay not to have kids. So it's an area I'm very passionate about around, you know, young women today really thinking about whether they want to be a mother or not, or any parents, I guess, you know, fathers as well, and really deciding whether that's right for them rather than society, you know, placing that expectation on them or their family or their friends or just doing what everyone else does. Because I've seen the other side of that where, Some people were never meant to be parents and they kind of went along with a ride and, you know, 20 years on, they're they're not in a great place. So, um, you know, the more we can help people to do what's right for them, the better. Yeah, it's been a whole journey for me. I think like everybody else, because that's what the Disney movies taught me, I just assumed that I would have children and that felt like that's what women did. That's just what I was taught. I didn't, I don't think I had anybody apart from my auntie Julie who was one of those aunties who's actually not blood related she was the only grown-up woman that I knew in my whole life that didn't have children and there was always an element of like poor auntie Julie because she didn't have children and so I just assumed that that would be what would happen and then and I think part of that awful period in my early 30s was I'm not where society has deemed I should be so I'm not married I'm I don't have children yet and I you know haven't bought my first house and and all of those things were contributing you know because who says you can't be happy as a waitress earning 20 bucks an hour you can be happy as a waitress earning you can be happy doing anything you know regardless as to your income or anything else but I had this sort of story that was that I was telling myself that you know, I wasn't where I should be and I was behind, right? This feeling of like, I am not where I should be. And I'm, I'm yeah, you weren't winning at life, Em, based on everyone else's expectation of where you should be and yeah. what you should be doing. It's bullshit. And then I got to, and then I started, you know, learning all of this, this stuff about managing my own mind and questioning the stories I had. And I hit 37, 38 and I thought, biologically, if I'm going to do it, if I'm going to have a family, that needs to be imminent. And... I looked objectively at my life and I was not in a financial position to have children. I probably then didn't really necessarily feel like while I I was doing a lot of personal development and and I was so new in my sobriety journey and and I just knew I I wasn't in the place to have children. I didn't have a relationship that was dependable and solid. And I thought, well, what are my options? I freeze my eggs. 
That looks hard and hormonal and expensive. And honestly, when you look at the statistics, the likelihood of you actually having a baby at the end of it is pretty slim. And I wasn't about to jump into a relationship with somebody that I didn't really love just so that I could have kids with them. And I didn't want to do it on my own. And I thought, well, I'm just not going to have kids then. And it felt really liberating, this real sense of freedom to not have to worry about it anymore. And of course, everyone asks about it because other people are curious by nature. I understand that. I've had all sorts of comments from, don't you think it's selfish because other people can't have children and you can? Well, how do they know you can? That's a massive presumption. Massive presumption. Oh, I'm quite I'm quite vocal about the fact that it's a choice. Yeah, but it still doesn't mean you can. You, you don't know that. No. Yeah, abso- absolutely. I could try to have a baby tomorrow and it just doesn't happen. Yeah. So I think I've had to take radical responsibility in a way that has meant that I, I have to be very certain when other people question me. At the same time, because I'm a human being and nothing exists in its ultimate truth, like there is always so many different sides to every experience that we have. As much as I am sure of the decision that I've made, I know it's the right one for me. And there are all sorts of other reasons that I'm not going to bore you with now as to why I think not having children in today's day and age is a really bloody good idea. But I think also you talk about, you know, decision making, right? So you made the de- you made the decision to do that and then you've backed it and like going into that decision fully and wholeheartedly. And then, you know, we talked a little bit off air before we came on and you, you, were, you used the kind of term around you then thought about all the things that you could do. Yeah, and look, I think that the key to any decision-making is making the decision and then making that decision work for you. And I thought, well, if I don't have children, what does that leave me available for? It leaves me available to travel. It leaves me much more disposable income. It leaves me the freedom to take bigger risks in terms of my work and in terms of my finances. And it gives me a great freedom, like every Sunday morning, Every Sunday morning, I wake up to no alarm. It's the only day of the week I don't have an alarm on normally. And I wake up and I lie in bed and I think to myself, how good is not having children? (laughs) You know, like you have to lean into the decisions that you make. You have to look for the good in the decisions that you have made because there will always be the flip. And there is the flip. Of course, there's the flip. Sometimes when I'm with one of my friends and she's looking at her newborn baby adoringly in that baby bubble of love, my heart breaks. And I think to myself, I'm never going to have that. Does it make me sad? Yes. Is that okay? Yes. Does it mean I've made the wrong decision? No. Because every decision has a consequence and every consequence will have both a negative and a positive attached to it. And it is my responsibility to lean into the positive consequences of the decisions that I have made because it is equally as easy for me to lean into the negative consequences of the decisions I have made and then what will my life look like how will I feel I'll be like I never had kids I couldn't find a partner in time I didn't have to like no honestly you just can't manifest greatness you can't manifest connection in a way that isn't infiltrated with drama. You can't manifest abundance. And I'm not talking about the amount of money in your bank account. I'm talking about the amount of joy that you can experience. 
And whilst life is full of suffering, I remember in the very early days of my sobriety, someone looked me dead in the eye. I think I'd been sharing about, you know, how awful my life was. <laughs> and he came up to me after the meeting and he looked me dead in the eye and he was like, life is suffering and you have to learn how to suffer well. And that, I think, is part of what radical responsibility means for me. Shit is going to go down. The people that you love are going to die. There is going to be great unfairness in your life. You're going to see it everywhere. It is unavoidable. Life is suffering. Radical responsibility gives you the ability to suffer well. It gives you ability to continue to access joy and to continue to create abundance for yourself and to continue to connect with people in a way that's meaningful and that contributes to the community in which you live. If you don't do that, all you're left with is the suffering. And I think the world has enough suffering. Um, amazing. What a way to finish. It's such a strong, incredible and heart-piercing sentiment. What a wonderful, insightful and interesting human you are. It's been just so lovely to chat to you today. Thank you so much. I've had such fun. Well, there you have it. Wasn't that an incredible conversation? I hope you enjoyed it as much as I've enjoyed bringing it to you. If you did like it, can I ask a small favour? Please rate and review on your listening platform for me. I know everyone asks this, but it seriously makes a difference to help get these conversations out in the world and makes all the hard work and effort I put into this for you all the more worthwhile. And until next time, if you have one question you'd like to ask me, hit me up on my socials or jump on my website, michellejcox.com. Listener.